Welcome to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and Radio Phoenix. Later in the show, we'll talk to Scott Willie about the Native American Research Internship at University of Utah Health, and we'll chat with Chef Emerson of Emerson Frybread. But right now, Susan Levy talks with Kristen Talbert, Indigenous Leadership Academy Project Coordinator at the American Indian Policy Institute at Arizona State University. On the phone with me is Kristen Talbert, a member of the Sisseton Wapaton Dakota Oyete, and is the Indigenous Leadership Academy Project Coordinator at the American Indian Policy Institute at Arizona State University. Welcome to our show, Kristen. Hi. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'll start with my traditional introduction. Hami Takiapi, Ampetu Tinde Oasin, Tante Wastea, Napetu Yuza PA, Sisituan Wakpetuan Hematahaye, Dama Kota, Phoenix, Arizona, Edwa PA, Heinana Pidamayaye. So, my relatives, it's with a good heart that I shake hands with all of you. I am enrolled in the Sisseton Wapakin Dakota Oyate, and I currently reside in Phoenix, Arizona. And I am currently getting my MBA at Arizona State University. What is the American Indian Policy Institute, the Watts College of Public Service and Community Solutions? The American Indian Policy Institute is a research institute at Arizona State University, and our college is Watts College of Public Service and Community Solutions. Um, Our goal is to work with tribal communities and indigenous peoples, and we do this by building an ecosystem of lifelong learning, academic research focused on key issues in Indian country, and analyzing and developing policy on those key issues. So what is the Indigenous Leadership Academy? Uh, Great question. The Indigenous Leadership Academy is a 10-module, roughly 10-week program that gives emerging leaders the framework to create a project that will positively impact the Native American community by looking at issues from all sides. So are each, the, the 10 modules, is this each person chosen for the academy? Are they working on it, or is this a joint project? Each emerging leader works with, they each learn the modules, and then they work together in smaller groups to maybe have a project idea and bounce ideas off their team members. An example is like, we have many people who are interested in behavioral health in the Indian community. So they might create a project that helps with that. I don't know what that will look like right now. It's their idea, but they'll use that to bounce their ideas and get feedback from their smaller group. So it's like a cohort of 27 people, and then those will be broken down into smaller groups. Tell us why was the Leadership Academy created? It was started with seed money from APS, which we are very grateful for. And it it was because APS noticed that there, there are many leadership academies throughout Arizona. There's Valley Leadership, there's Flynn Brown, State of Black Arizona, Hispanic Leadership Institute, but there wasn't one for Native Americans. So APS brought the idea to ASU and said, you know, we'd start with the seed money. Would you be interested in starting a leadership academy for emerging indigenous leaders? And that's how that came about. What's the goal of the academy? The goal of the academy is to build confidence within emerging indigenous leaders in Arizona to encourage learning and understanding of issues affecting Indian country in order to create a better and brighter future for our Indigenous communities. Are there any other programs like this in the U.S.? There are Native American leadership programs. Most of them are geared towards tribal leadership. Um, 
you know, there is like Blandin, there's Tribal Leaders Program out of the University of Arizona, um, but their focus is on tribal leadership in federally recognized tribes. And when we were thinking about this, you know, we took into account that there are many tribal people who do not live on reservations, who don't want to be political or tribal leaders in that way, but they still want to give back to their community. They want to help out their native community, but they may not be tribal, um, like living on reservations. And so it was very important to me that we accept people from both um, urban, rural, tribal, it didn't matter where you lived. You just had to live in Arizona. And how many individuals have been chosen for the first cohort? 28 were accepted into the program. Um, 27 actually committed to the program. So they committed to the 10-week modules, right? Yes, correct. Okay. I saw the list, and they were amazing, um, really, individuals with diverse backgrounds and interests. How did you choose the participants? How we chose the participants? Um, well, we had a, a Google Forms and they had to fill it out. We, they did have to meet certain criteria, such as living within Arizona, have, want to work on a project or create a positive impact for um, tribal, tribal people, tribal communities. We read all of their answers and really just, we're looking for people who wanted to create meaningful change for the Native American community here in Arizona. It looks like you're going to be able to do that with this group. So what are you most excited about beginning the Indigenous Leadership Academy? I'm really excited about everything. Our curriculum is one of a kind. It was written by Dr. Denise Bates here at Arizona State University. She has worked in indigenous leadership throughout her career and there's no other curriculum like it so i'm really excited for the curriculum i've been going through it on my own and i i'm just in awe it's really really a great curriculum it's evergreen so it can be it can adapt and change along with changes in anything I'm really excited about this group of individuals. I, like I said, I read each one of their applications and I just was so amazed at the people that we got. They were amazing, amazing people. And I'm really excited to see what they can create when they come together um, and what projects they'll create that will benefit the Native American community in terms of their emerging leadership. I can't wait to see what you all come up with. So I know that you've got the Indigenous Leadership Academy blog, and what is it, where can you find it, and what's the feedback been? So the ILA blog is at our website, which is aipi.asu.edu, and it's one of the tabs is blog and that is really I, I started it as like a as little sound bites to get people interested into the program but it's really a, it's really turned into its own thing I I started focusing on what I call a leadership toolkit or a leader's toolkit and each blog post is focused on something that I think every emerging indigenous leader should know. Because I have the education background and I'm pairing it with my business background, so each blog post talks about a topic, shows it how you deal with it from a business perspective, but also discusses it from an indigenous perspective. And we also started a book list, a reading list with the Labriola National Data Center, and that is probably one of our most viewed blogs of 2021. 
people loved the reading list and we've continued it because who doesn't love reading? So we, we had, we were like, we're going to have a list of 10 books and we have a list of 50 books. So we're, we're organizing it so that we have five different blog posts for that. But the blog posts that I've gotten a lot of feedback, positive feedback on are um, the mentorship blogs and the etiquette blogs. I think I know I've been in situations where as an indigenous person, there are certain etiquette and rules that you follow and protocols. And then in business, it's like a 180 from that. And how do you navigate that? That's pretty interesting. I'm going to have to check out the books and see what books and then also the mentorship and the etiquette. So I wanted to know, where do you see this program in five years? That's a great question. Where we want to see this program in five years is to have a national presence, have national national cohorts run. Um, I think that could be a positive from having to be on Zoom due to the pandemic. We recently had to pivot and move it online. Where we see it is having a national presence with cohorts from all over the country. And we think we can do this with Zoom. I would like to have quarterly cohorts running. Right now we're just planning for spring and fall, but to have it four times a year, accepting as many people as we can, that that's really what I want to see. And and then eventually possibly turning it into um, a degree program, a master's program. So how often will there be new cohorts? I know you mentioned that you've got a cohort coming in the spring, and then you're looking to do another one this fall? That's correct. So we're hoping, um, well, we're not hoping. We're going to, we're planning for two this year, and we're planning for two next year, and eventually to grow that into more. And so are you planning on 28, um, another cohort of 28 individuals this fall? I'm planning on as many as want to come (laughs) and meet the criteria. I really, I don't have a specific number in mind. Um, And so I'm really, really hopeful that people get excited about this and are excited about it as I am. And, you know, tell their friends about it, tell people they know, I think, um, yeah, anyone who is an emerging Indigenous leader who wants to do well for the community is welcome to apply. I think it sounds like a spectacular opportunity and able to learn and share ideas and, and make some real change. So what advice do you have for younger individuals that want to make a difference and get involved? Should they start thinking in elementary school, middle school, high school, college? What advice would you give them? So the advice I would give anyone is not the time of when you start, but like, don't be afraid. Uh, Don't be afraid to ask questions, to speak up, to step outside of your comfort zone trying new things is scary. It's scary for me, but if you put yourself out there, if you face that fear, it will lead to amazing opportunities. Thank you so much. Where can someone go to find more information and how can someone contact you? Sure. So to find more information, you can visit our website at aipi.asu.edu. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is AIP Institute and Facebook and LinkedIn, which we are American Indian Policy Institute. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Kristen. Thank you so much, Susan. Coming up next, we'll talk with Scott Willey. Support for Radio Phoenix comes in part from Native Health, Located at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, near the corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road in Phoenix. And in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue, near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, 
WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org. Native Talk Arizona will return after this song. You are listening to Singing Lights by Tony Duncan and Darren Yazzie. Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and Radio Phoenix. I'm Susan Levy. On the phone with me today is Scott Willey, MD, PhD, Program Coordinator for the University of Utah MD, PhD program. Welcome to our show, Scott. Hi, thank you. Uh, Good morning or good afternoon, wherever you are listening in from. I'm happy to be here uh, with Native Talk. Well, welcome back. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, everyone, my name is Scott Willie. I am Navajo. I'm originally from Upper Fruitland, New Mexico. I recently, not recently, but I moved to the University of, or I moved to Utah in 2016 and have been working at the University of Utah in the health sciences. And particularly, I've been working as a program coordinator Uh, for the Native American Summer Research Internship for the past five years, and just now recently, um, and now working as the MD-PhD program coordinator. So let's back up a little bit. Can you tell me about the University of Utah, the School of Medicine, and the Department of Pediatrics? So with the University of Utah and the Department of Pediatrics, their mission really is to improve the lives of children through excellency in advocacy, education, research, and clinical care. And the big vision is really to caring uh, for children and caring for their future. And the big part that stems from uh, their mission is really the research and education portion as it relates to the NARI program. Okay, so I'm going to back up again. So what's NARI? Is that the Native American Research Institute? Yes, that's correct. Uh, NARI is the Native American Summer Research Internship, and the NARI program is a dynamic summer research opportunity for American Indian or Alaska Native undergraduate students, uh, those that are junior or senior who are interested in pursuing a health profession, uh, really in health science research. And this internship is actually going to be in person at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Uh, this coming summer. So we're really excited to uh, provide this wonderful um, educational opportunity for Native students who are interested in pursuing a healthcare career. So you said it's for junior and senior undergraduates interested in research, or is it any health profession? Yeah, it's really any um, health professions. A lot of our students, um, you know, either apply to medical school or any other uh, professional uh, graduate programs. We have some students who have gone on to pharmacy school. Um, They've gone on to get their master's in public health. Um, We have students who are interested in pursuing a career in dentistry. So it's really any uh, healthcare field that you're interested in uh, pursuing. However, the research that that is being conducted with the NARI program is related to um, the National Institutes of Health, which is um, a, a government service uh, funding opportunity for the uh, program. And we really focus in on diabetes, digestion, and kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, pulmonary and blood diseases, and child and maternal health are the areas that we particularly focus in in the research for our students. So what kind of research would that be? So are you talking about like looking at data or surveys or talking to families? 
Yeah, so really the program allows students to select a type of um, research that they're interested, whether that is basic science research, clinical science research, or translational science research. Uh, basic science research is really when students are in a general lab setting where they get to go into a lab and they are maybe working with um, various cell organisms or animal model systems to um, identify a specific um, disease that the principal investigator is looking at investigating further. Or we also have um, clinical research where some of our researchers and our students are paired together to um, identify different disease uh, diagnosis and our students are working in either a uh, clinical setting, whether they are in an office collecting data, reading uh, literature reviews um, on different uh, research projects that are happening across the country, and they're really being hands-on and helping uh, their research mentor on that specific project. And translational research is just basically the combination of both uh, basic science and clinical research together. So how long has this internship been in existence? The NARI program has been in existence since 2010, and we are just now moving into our 13th summer and for 2022. So we're really excited about um, providing the, the program again for another summer. Um, obviously, with COVID, um, that's you know something that we worked with in 2020, where we decided to cancel the program. However, we were able to overcome those obstacles and challenges last year, and we were able to invite uh, 24 students to the University of Utah last summer, and we were really excited about that. So we're hoping that um, everything will play out similarly to 2021 uh, last summer, and we will have a program in person again this summer. So how many individuals have participated in the past, and how many are you taking for this summer? Yeah, so um, with the number of individuals who have participated in the NARI program, we've had 151 students and of those, uh, they represent 46 tribal nations, and they come from 26 different uh, states from the United States, including Alaska. We just had a, a student from Alaska last summer, so we're really excited about how the program is being able to reach uh, students who come from very rural communities, and so we're really excited about that. Um, so if you come from Alaska, please, um, you know, um, apply for the program, and it's a wonderful opportunity for you to learn about a particular health disease as it relates to um, any indigenous communities and take that back with you to your community and uh, try to address those problems at your home uh, community. So we're really excited about that. So do you have any like great success stories from individuals that have finished the internship? Yes, you know, there's so many um, wonderful, successful stories. I don't think one, any one of our students is not successful because they've been able to commit to a 10-week program. And investing in 10 weeks is really a lot, especially when we're asking Native students to leave their um, hometowns or their families and commit to a new location um, for 10 weeks. That's a lot. So just being able to complete the program is a success in itself for all of our students. We haven't had any students who have dropped out from the program, but it gets really hard. Um, but other than you know, that particular part, you know, some of our students are, you know, in residency programs across the country. They've completed their medical education and are now in residency programs. Um, we have actually had students who um, come from Utah and uh, have received a graduate degree in nutrition and have become leaders within their home uh, towns uh, where they've, um, you know, were started as a nonprofit organizations and being able to um, connect the the research aspects around diabetes and um, connecting that with traditional foods. We've had one student who has been able to do that for the past six years, and she has a very successful story. And we're just really proud of her and. 
Um, we know that she, her next steps is to, um, you know, go on to get her PhD. So we're really excited about that particular successful um, story in our program. So you've obviously had a lot of successes, but that leads me to the next question. You just talked about the successful woman who's going on to the PhD. So what about University of Utah's MD-PhD program? What's that? Yeah, the University of Utah MD-PhD program um, is really a, um, a newer, it's, I wouldn't say it's a new program, but it's just recently started um, in the late 90s. Um, and, you know, with that program, really their mission is to train the next physician scientist. And these are individuals who hold a, a doctoral degree in medicine, but also a PhD. So these individuals spend, you know, they have a an eight-year educational um, time span where they're doing two years of medical school, then there are four years of their PhD program, and then they finish up with their last two years of medical school. And with the University and MD-PhD program, we've partnered with the NARI program since 2015, where we have sponsored um, about two students every summer to really um, address the needs of Uh, having more Native students um, think about a career as a physician scientist. And with this um, partnership, we've been able to uh, sponsor six students since um, 2015. And really, our goal for this this coming summer is to also sponsor two students as well. From my understanding, there's like less than... Uh, 15 uh, MD-PhD native scientists, and I'm being very generous with that number. I could be wrong, but the last that I've heard, there was like very little um, MD-PhD native uh, physicians out there. So we're really excited about being able to partner with the NARI program. And just recently, we've had um, two native um, candidates who have applied for our MD-PhD program, and we were really excited to um, work with these individuals for, um, you know, for recruiting them to the University of Utah. So we're really excited about that partnership with the NARI program as well. That sounds like a great success. But I've got a question. So if students, how early should students be looking at potential opportunities if they're interested in a career in medicine? Does it start with middle school, high school, when should individuals start looking at this and their future, asking about internships, mentoring, volunteering? What recommendations or suggestions do you have? Yeah, Susan, that is a really you know, poignant question because it really stems from early development. And we say as early as middle school is the best time for um, parents to actually start um, investing in their children's education, um, it could be hard really for talking to specifically for rural families who, you know, are interested in having their children go into college um, because there's not a lot of opportunities for middle school, high school students who come from rural communities as it relates to uh, medicine and in research. But that is a really great time period for students to start thinking about how they could get into a medical school. And with um, the MD-PhD program, it is very research-driven. So having a lot of that um, in your background really helps you as a candidate when you do begin to apply for an MD-PhD career. Or in general, if you just want to apply for an MD degree, uh, you know, starting at the middle school level is also a good time for your um, parents to start supporting their children to um, get more exposure into medicine, whether that's reading, you know, small articles around medicine, um, you know, getting them involved in their community because uh, volunteer is a huge component to a lot of um, applicants who do apply for an MD career. And, all, and obviously focusing on um, good grades, just being a good student, um, is a really great um, step for a lot of the uh, applicants who do apply for medical school as well. And obviously the clinical shadowing aspect is really hard for rural communities, but if you are able to connect with folks from different institutions, 
who may be closer to home to you and just reaching out and saying, hey, I have this student who, or I have a child who is interested in um, doing some, you know, clinical shadowing, but we don't have opportunities. Can you help us connect us to um, a folk who, a folks who have these opportunities for our students? Um, but it's out there. It's just a matter of being proactive for both the parent and the student as well. But I, I, I definitely agree that it starts at the middle school level, and I've had plenty of conversations nationally with other programs who do focus specifically on recruiting and retaining Native students is that it starts at the middle school level. So do they also, I mean, I know in medicine and applying for medical school, they're generally looking for well-rounded individuals. Is that still true? Or are you looking for someone who just really wants to stay in that lane from middle school all the way through just science? and math-oriented, um, and medicine, or are you looking for somebody who actually wants to volunteer in a garden and help children and help with food distribution? So what advice would you have? Yeah, and that that's just the same narrative that we've had for a lot of our candidates at the University of Utah School of Medicine is that we, we are reviewing applicants based off of how well-rounded these individuals are. Um, what are they doing for their communities? Um, what is their academic, uh, you know, grades look like? How involved are they with their campus community as well? Not just like their community, but their campus community. What are they doing with their peers? That really helps reviewers look at a candidate and say, this is a really great student. They have a lot of volunteering hours. They've you know, been able to do X, Y, and Z for their community. They participate in educational activities on campus, whether that's joining a club, being a president. So really stepping in, stepping into those leadership roles um, really kind of separates a lot of the applicants who do get accepted into medical school. And just, yeah, being a very well-rounded candidate can help set you apart from any other candidate who is applying for um, an MD degree. If somebody was interested in applying to either NARI or the MD-PhD program, are they able to contact you? And if so, where can somebody go to find more information and or contact you? If you are interested in applying for the NARI program, I am no longer involved in the NARI program, although I do work for the MD-PhD program, so I will have uh, some capacity working with uh, students. However, you can reach the NARI program. They just hired a new coordinator. Her name is uh, Walita Ranger, and you can reach her at either by email or you can just go to Google and Google search uh, Utah and NARI, and that should take you to the very first page to the Native American Summer Research Internship. And there, there's contact information that you can contact, or they also have a phone number that you can reach, which is 801-213-4116, and that is Walita Ranger's um, phone number as well. And you can also reach me at uh, S-C-O-T-T period W-I-L-L-I-E at hsc.utah.edu. If you do have any questions, um, I'm really open to helping any students or parents who do have questions about pursuing um, or helping their child pursue a career in medicine. That's awesome. Thanks, Scott. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, and we look forward to having you on sometime again. Awesome. Thank you so much, Susan, and thank you, Native Talk, for having us. Coming up next, we'll talk with Chef Emerson of Emerson Fry Bread. Support for Radio Phoenix comes in part from Native Health, located at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, near the corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road in Phoenix, and in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue, near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. COVID vaccinations and testings are available at both locations for anyone over the age of 5. For more information, call 602 279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org.
Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and Radio Phoenix. I'm Susan Levy. On the phone with us today is Chef Emerson of Emerson Fry Bread. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Chef Emerson, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your path that led to Emerson Fry Bread? Uh, yes. Uh, my grandfather is Fred Emerson Kuchan. Uh, my grandmother is Henrietta Lafoon. Mojave. I'm a registered tribal member of Colorado River Indian tribes, and my mother is Nakai. So that's where I get uh, my a little bit more of the flavor, a little bit more of the herb, the crazy. Um, but I, uh, that is who, that is my tribal affiliations. Uh, I was blessed and able to meet Roxy in 2000, uh, 2010. She was selling food at, at, at Native American Connections. And we just brought a hybrid of what of what uh, food is going to be in as far as the gourmet stuff, and what my history is, and that's where because Emerson Freiberg started uh, with the Salt River Band. My father, my grandfather, my aunties, my uncles—they were all in the Salt River Band. And in order to make money to travel, gas, lodging, they sold fry bread. My my grandma, my grandma, my aunties—they sold fry bread. So the beginning of Emerson is actually music. So music is what motivated everybody to work. And if they wanted new stuff, they wanted clothes, well, then they had to get on, on board the trailer back then and work. So that's where we started. <laughs> so you started selling fry bread to make money for the music, right? Correct. Uh, in the, my grandfather and, and my father did. My grandfather, father, and my aunties. Because they used to sell uh, at the Arizona State Fair in the 80s. 70s and 80s and 90s that's how i remember it and that's what uh that's what i brought back is that knowledge that i learned just just watching my aunties go and seeing the long lines that my family had when i saw them during the state fair time is something that always stayed with me um and and it's something that that when i met roxy and she was doing food uh we, we just brought it back to life together her and i so did you help your aunties at the uh, state fair way back when Absolutely. I have pictures of myself on, on my Facebook page of me uh, taking orders around eight or nine years old. And that was probably like my second or third year doing it. But I rem- because as kids, we're all expected to work in the soda, do the sodas, because there's just so many people during the fair. It is so packed for those three weeks, those three weekends, that it's just we need consistent and constantly sodas. Boom, 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 boom. So myself, my favorite cousins, my sister, everybody, all the little youngsters were start there. So I, I went through that. I went through taking orders. I fried just a little bit. But um, my love for food, for hard work, came from my grandpa. I don't know how, but I understand now is uh, I used to have to clean the, the frying pans. <laughs> that was my job as a little kid was cleaning the frying pans. And maybe I didn't understand it back then, but I was trusted to do, to do the hardest part and the most important job. And is that's the heat element that fries the bread that makes all the money that makes all of us sustainable. You know what I'm saying? So as a kid, I didn't get it until like I'm sitting right next to my truck. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's uh, a work ethic that was instilled inside of me by my grandfather uh, to be a business owner and, and to lead a truck, to lead a family and to be able to support ourselves. That's the bottom line is we're able to support ourselves. Roxy was doing it already. And, and I had I had a history of it, and I just wanted to bring it back. And, and her work ethic and, my, and our history, we're just on top right now. That's pretty awesome. So how long has Emerson Frybread been in business? Roxy and I have been in business for 12 years. Um, I just like to give homage and, and history and credence to the, to the history of, my, of, of Emerson. But Roxy and I and the gourmet, on the gourmet level started in April 14th of, of 2011. It was our first food truck we got. It was a lease. 
And that's, and that's where we started. We started uh, learning small business, what it is to be a small business owner. Uh, we actually have, uh, we leased for our first, uh, shoot, five years, six years. So she knows in her head that we spent over $272,000 on leasing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember leasing way back when seeing that vehicle, uh, like many, many years ago. So like, how has the business morphed? So you were talking about leasing the vehicle to now your new vehicle and have you changed things in the period of 12 or period of 12 years? The only thing that's changed in as we got into it when it was, when it was like blasting and coming out big and Guy Fieri was out and the food network came up and uh, a whole bunch of cool stuff was going on in the food network. Um, and then uh, the recession had just hit. So it was perfect timing for Roxy and I to get in it. And it just worked out for us like that. You know what I mean? Um, and now, uh, since we started, I think her and I, uh, it, 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 it's a team effort. You know what I mean? It really is her kids. It's her and I. It, it's just wanting to be the best at what we do. And I think coming from, from my, my background as a kid, uh, all the crazy stuff we did as children and just always being show-offs and show-outs, <laughs> you know what I mean? It had it to where it just it worked out perfectly for me because – we put a gourmet twist on it in as far as uh, carne a la wala, uh, uh, the, the What separated me from everybody else is I started using uh, mixed greens, so salad greens. So hydroponically grown, aeroponically grown mixed greens and spending a lot of money on mixed greens, getting stuff from farmers, from uh, farmers markets, getting stuff from Phoenix public market. So I was spending two, three times what the normal person was spending on, on food to make it gourmet, you see? Um, but when the pandemic happened, everything kind of switched a little bit, you know what I mean? Because we wanted to stay stationary and not move around. So I'm gonna backtrack a little bit. So what's currently on your menu and what's most the most popular item? Uh, currently my menu is, is down and dirty. You can get it anywhere on, and at any uh, Beautiful, beautiful roast mutton sandwiches is my number one. Uh, it's my favorite sandwich. It's literally one of the very first things my father's uh, wife gave me was little mutton ribs when I was younger. And I remember tasting those ribs at the fair. And it was just something that overcame me that's never left me. So then when Roxy and I ate it again uh, at, at Dilcon, at the, at, we ate it again. We're like, yo, we should do this again. We should do this. We should do this. It was just the wrong timing because our customer base was more uh, GoDaddy. We were doing a lot of office parks. We were doing, I mean, every single office park you can think of, and we've been there already. Every festival, we've done it. Um, so mutton and mutton sandwiches don't really go well at those places, you know what I mean? So it was more carne asada, burritos, and, and carne alawala, and upscale fry bread. That's where I, I made it to the max. So is that where you, I know when you were talking about like the salad greens and getting things from the local farmers, is that kind of how you, for the corporate events, that's when you're rolling that in rather than the mutton sandwiches, right? Absolutely. And that's okay. when you have to change and adjust with the customers, with, the, with, their, with, their, with their number one of, yes, do they want traditional food? Do they want uh, fair food? Do they want uh, my my gourmet menu? Because I do green chili chicken. I do carne alawala. I can do birria. I can do birria on bread. I can do roast mutton. I mean, uh, I'm, a, I'm a classically trained chef. I graduated from ACI, from Arizona Corn Institute. So I can literally just look at a menu or think of something and just mix it up and mix it in there. So we've done almost everything on there. Snake, I've done rabbit. No, no, I'm, I want to do rabbit stew. Uh, uh, buffalo. That's what I was trying to get at. Buffalo. One of my one of my prizes. One of my best dishes that I've done uh, for a contest was a sous vide rabbit. A sous vide rabbit. Sous vide buffalo tenderloin with cilantro pearls. Beautiful mixed greens that I grew myself. Uh, a beautiful a medley of of, ro of shaved carrots. It was just a beautiful dish. And a little girl from Evit won fifteen hundred dollars scholarship. Uh, and we competed against uh, ACI. Uh, South uh, Mesa, a group from Mesa was there. ACI, two teams from um, from my former school. Um, so it was really cool to compete uh, against uh, my own chef, uh, Chef Rigolet, 
uh, his students. Uh, one of their students was a 4.0 grad. And I went in there with a the little, with, with the high school kid. <laughs> and we beat him, yo. And, and so to me, that was my best moment, knowing that I can, I can teach somebody else something that was taught to me and pass it on, no matter who you are or what you are, your age, your ethnic background, anything. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I've always wanted to do. And that and that kind of turns into what what my what my eldest kid does. She's a teacher. She's a she's a nursing she's a nursing teacher. So I always wanted to be able to do that. My kids are doing it, so it's almost it's almost like doing it myself. So that's where my gratitude comes in. So do you change the menu seasonally? Because I know you mentioned that you grew some of the greens and things that you had used. So are you having to change it up for like leafy greens now? And then in the summer, would you go more with like the tomatoes and the squash and then incorporate that with the menu? Uh, what's, what, when what happened is, is that we used to be at, at Native American farm, at the, at the farms right here at Agave Farms. And for a, for a while, we were growing our own tomatoes our own jalapenos i was making chipotle sauce so what what i was trying to do uh two three years ago was number one to be able to learn how to farm and to take a small patch of land and and make something grow something like my tomatoes those greens uh, the jalapenos and sell it back to myself and keep the money uh keep the money within our own family like just name it name it for one of my kids roxy has we have eight children all together so my whole thing was having small businesses for all these kids, for them to be able to take care of themselves. So that's still the goal of ours is, is to is to incorporate a small family, a small farm into our into our business. So tell me, I want to go back to the menu for a minute because I absolutely love your food. So tell me a little bit. So what else is on the menu right now? So in the truck, if you were going for traditional foods besides the mutton, what else is there? Oh well, this. Absolutely, my home run hitter can't go wrong. Uh, Navajo taco, beautifully seasoned, succulent ground beef. Roxy's puffy, delicious fry bread. Uh, the 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 beans that I do are Colorado beans right now, so they're Colorado River beans. So and I put a sachet in there, which is uh, bay leaves, a little bit of uh, cracked peppercorns, some 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 dried red chilies. Put it in a little in a little uh, in a little baggie and put it in the in the, in my beans. You know, I mean, that's one of my secrets. I'm telling you guys, but it's cool because <laughs> there's still two dry ingredients that aren't in there. But, <laughs> but, but, and that's the thing is, and that separates us all the way down from the beans, from the prickly pear lemonade, from the green chili chicken, because that was one of our things. Each thing was named after one of Roxy's kids, one of our kids. D Money is Darian D Money, her her 22 year old. The Muzzy is the burrito. The Ga- uh, Gabby, her her 20-year-old, is is the was the flabadabas, our street tacos. So I would be able to flip and switch that around and to do anything, or that my kids would be able to take a taco menu. Like I'm sitting, I'm literally looking at, at at my 20-year-old right now. She could literally take a taco menu and go do flabadabas by herself. Boom, and they're ready to go, and she'd be able to take care of herself. That's just sitting there. I just have to write it down. You know what I mean? Um, she knows that. She knows. She knows that that she can have an Emerson, that she can do her own thing, and that was what Roxy and I were trying to do from the beginning. You know what I mean? Make sure that her, her kids, that our kids together, are, are are here for a long time. So I got a question for you. Um, do you have any favorite stories or memories with the fry bread truck or the food that you'd like to share? Uh, Roxy and I were talking a little bit about this yesterday. There's so many of them. Uh, but the main one that I that, that our biggest one was 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 in the very beginning we were four months out we we're four months out and uh, DPG Fried Bread is an Apache brother he's half Mexican half Apache but he's an Apache brother that had the gourmet trucks and he was in a group that we were in and uh, it was at a pickleball tournament so he was there DPG was there Emerson Fried Bread was there AZ Barbecue was there two gourmet cupcakes so we had a contest of the best dish. And we were four months out. We didn't have a wrap. All our kids are on board. And we won $500 and a four-foot trophy. And this trophy was bigger than our little kids, man. And just knowing that a brand-new business can compete against other trucks that have been out for a while was, was just something that felt so good as a new business owner. This was in 2012, I believe. So this is about 10 years ago. 
and the picture's up is up on our Facebook, um, and it's usually our 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 cover picture, because it goes down to that that what my grandpa said, what my grandpa taught me, what he used to say to me is that if your kids, if you if you show your kids how to work hard right here in this truck in this trailer, they can take care of themselves. They can pay for their school, they can pay for their shoes, all the nice stuff they want, but they have to work. They're not gonna get it if they don't come and work for us. You know what I mean? And you have to always remember that. These are lessons that I was a little guy, but I didn't really get, you know, <laughs> you know, I didn't really understand until I'm literally sitting right here at my college kid right now. You know what I mean? Uh, Adobe fires, uh, retagging my, my fire extinguishers and I'm in my car. I'm, I'm, I'm half a mile away from work and this is easy now. It's not as hard as it used to be. It's just getting our kids. Okay. And, and, and we got that. We're getting there. Well, it sounds like you're an amazing parent, and I know you're an amazing businessman. But I've got a quick question because I know we're out of time. How can somebody find Emerson Fry Bread, where you're going to be? Is it through your Facebook or a website? And then how can somebody contact you? Our, our best form of contact is directly to call Roxy, 602-516-8228. Our, uh, our, Facebook, uh, our Facebook business page is another way. Uh, that's Emerson Frybread on Facebook. Uh, Emerson Frybread is also on Instagram. And my number is 480-234-9785. And we can be uh, contacted directly that way. Chef Emerson, thank you so much. I love your food, and I'm so glad that you were with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Susan. Thank, I, I'm, so, I'm so glad to finally be able to, have, be able to do this with you. I appreciate you, and we love your building. Thank you for listening to Native Talk Arizona, which is produced through a partnership between Native Health and Radio Phoenix. Our sound engineer is Javier Quiroga, and the executive producer is Susan Levy. We hope you'll listen again next week. If you have any questions, please email us at nativetalkaz at radiophoenix.org.